This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we explore the warning of the prophet Micah as he speaks to the people of Judah about what God truly desires. That's right. We got uh, some interesting uh, disclaimers isn't the right word, but we are coming to you today from the future. We um, recorded these episodes originally and for years. Brent, how long did it take for us to get around to uh, fixing this problem? Uh, It's been about three and a half years. (laughs) We don't have a disclaimer for today. We're removing a disclaimer that has been in existence for three and a half years. There you go. A thorn in our side. Yeah. When we originally recorded this episode, we, we, we had some kind of malfunction with our mics. Like even to this day, we don't know. What happened? Because somewhere in the middle of next episode, the mics started working. So we know it wasn't some like fix that we did. Uh, but anyway, so we had this really lousy, awkward backup microphone recording. So we are now going back and redoing these episodes. Uh, so we are coming to you from the future. We're going to try to avoid any weird, wacky back to the future moments where we screw up the Bema continuum experience. But uh, things have changed somewhat. Uh, we're all older and wiser. Uh, we're now 17. Brent, you said 1,700 miles apart? Yep. Yeah. Marty lives in Ohio. I'm in Cincinnati now. Brent's still back in Moscow. We used to, it probably was you know, 1,700 miles now. We probably weren't hardly 17 inches apart before when we sat in my master closet recording episodes. Yep, crowded into the closet. Barely yep. enough room for the two of us. That's right. Well, but that's... So if things sound a little different, they'll definitely sound better than they did, right, Brent? Certainly sound better. Although, like the idea is, if you had just listened to episode forty-nine and then you pull this up, we'll probably sound a little bit different. But we are going to recreate this episode as closely as possible to to how we did it originally. So that's right. I, I'm going to try to act like I have not grown for the last three and a half years. I'm going to try to port myself back to three and a half years worth of ignorance and naivete and go all the way back there and do it that way the colors of our beards do not change in audio form so we're good (laughs) oh boy they sure did in real life though man all right brent well i say we jump right in anything else we need to cover before we get right into this uh just say uh that i don't have a cold this time so that's nice (laughs) that is nice that's right last episode was pretty rough last episode being Episode 49 was uh, a rough experience for Mr. Brent Billings, but feeling better now, three and a half years later. Yep. Liking it? <laughs> Finally got over it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And and so we're going to, you know, one of the things that we often do when, when back in the day when we had discussion groups, when we are, um, when we're in discussion groups in different settings, even now, one of the things that I love to do is to do a review. And we don't do it as much in the podcast uh, because we, we often do it in some of those other spaces. And yet the review is so important because it really helps us get an idea of the big picture, the larger narrative, the, the big story, the meta narrative of God. And one of the things that we, we talk about here at Impact Campus Ministries is uh, the idea of message. It's one of our, our, our common language terms. And when we talk about message, we talk about the whole story of God and his invitation to join. The whole story of God and his invitation to join. And that's so important because I, I feel like we, a lot of us got trained, a lot of us in ministry that went through Bible college or seminary, we got trained in a very doctrine-centric way. 
um, Christian training. And so you get taught all these truths, and the Bible is used as the foundation of those truths, and, and we have all of our proof texts. And we, but, but one of the things that we have learned in the last few decades with the changing of generations and the way that we look at information is the beauty of being able to see narrative, like to see the whole narrative. And, and so that's reviewing the whole story. We would love for people when they got done with Bema to be able to say, I, I know I can explain to you in four or five minutes how the whole Bible works. I can talk about how the narrative arc from Genesis to Revelation works, what the story of God's people are, where the story is headed, what God has done throughout history, where we fit into that story, and what God is doing. So uh, we're just going to kind of uh, walk through a little bit of that review. And and so we're going to start in Genesis, right in the beginning. And we're going to say that that um, uh, God started with a preface. He wanted to tell us that uh, the story uh, was good and, and invite us to trust the story. Like that's Genesis chapter 1. The creation is good and an invitation to trust that. Throughout the preface, we see people that, that struggle with that and they don't. Uh, but eventually we meet... Uh, a man by the name of Avram uh, ushers us into the introduction of the story, Genesis 12 through through 50. We meet the family of God. We see a group of people that are far from perfect. Um, they're very human. They make a ton of mistakes. Um, they don't always trust the story. But by and large, even in the middle of those struggles, they come back to and they they do lean back in to trusting the story. And that really sets the stage for the larger, the larger narrative, this, this tale of two kingdoms, empire and shalom. And, and we get to the, the book of Genesis and, and God goes and he rescues his bride uh, out of Egypt in the story of the Exodus. He leads her to Mount Sinai where there's a, there's a wedding ceremony. Um, and then, and then they, they have a little building project. What is it that they build, Brent Billings? Uh, tabernacle. They build a tabernacle. Why? Why? Who is it that works at the tabernacle, Brent? The priests. And why was that important for our, for our narrative? Because we're supposed to be a kingdom of priests. That's right. And so, if if God has asked us to be a kingdom of priests, then then we need to know who a priest is and what they do. If I'm supposed to be one, I need to understand who they are. And so, God gives them the tabernacle, and and then He gives them the Book of Leviticus, which is basically the manual to that priesthood. It basically describes who the priest is and how the priest functions and and how we're supposed to be like priests and and so there's there's that and then there's a there's a desert honeymoon if this if this is a wedding we said that God went and got a bride from Egypt in the Exodus story took her to Mount Sinai where there was a wedding well then the next thing they build a they build a honeymoon suite the next thing is the honeymoon and so you have a desert honeymoon in the book of Numbers where the bride gets to go off with this new groom with God into the desert and they get to learn about uh, who each other is and and grow in that way, and then there's a book of Deuteronomy where God essentially says, "Let's let's not remember where we came from. Don't don't forget, but re- remember." And so we've said before that this whole journey through Torah really can be described in terms of partnership, like God um, setting the stage for the partnership, telling us where the partner came from, and then and then choosing the partner in the book of Exodus, and then defining the partnership in the book of Leviticus, and then. Uh, 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 then, then experiencing that partnership in the book of Numbers, and and remembering the whole story of the partnership in the book of Deuteronomy. But then God takes this partner and He puts this partner at the crossroads of the earth uh, in the book of Je- in the book of Joshua, and in, in the story of the book of Joshua, the the, the partner gets put at the crossroads of the earth. Um, 
and, and really to live out this mission, to live out this partnership. Now it's time to, to we're, we're done with the honeymoon. Now we're going to live out this relationship. But there's a struggle there. And so the book of Judges uh, talks all about this cycle. What kind of cycle did we say this was, this was, Mr. Brent? Redemption cycle where we constantly see, you know, the Israelites making mistakes, but God never failing to to pick them up and set them back on the right path. Right. And this held in juxtaposition with what do Christians often talk about this cycle? Flip it around. They talk about the sin cycle and they just focus on the fact that Israel has failed. Right. But not not remembering the uh, endless patience that God has for them. Right. And, and so we, we talk about that redemption cycle. We even mentioned that this, this was far from just a, a story of like everybody failing and full of failure, that we have stories like the book of Ruth. That that tell us stories where like God's people are, are are doing the right thing. So so the struggle is real, and 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 there's a there's a real story behind that, and that eventually leads us up to the period that we we talk about the kings, uh, and and the and the people of Israel demand a king. They get Saul, who's a donkey herder, um, from Benjamin, uh, and and there's some real things they learn about that. But then there's but then there's David, who's a shepherd, uh, from Judah, um. And so you have this this juxtaposition of two different kings, like a king that's going to lead like the world's going to lead, or and then there's a king that's going to lead like a shepherd. And so we get to juxtapose those those two. Uh, and then, you know, that's really kind of the height of the story because the next, you know, the next generation is King Solomon, and he has this lust for empire that kind of causes the whole story to just kind of begin to unravel. Um, and into that, into that experience, God's given his people the you know tools. We talked about the wisdom literature. Uh, he's given them psalms and and proverbs, and we talked about Ecclesiastes and and intimacy with songs of songs. And and so God's given his people tools. But in the midst of this, the struggle continues. Like the struggle was one thing back in Judges, and now the struggle just continues in new ways and new forms. But now it's starting, the struggle isn't just a struggle. It's the struggle's now becoming like, it's kind of systematizing itself. It is, it is developing itself. It's taking on uh, overtones of empire. It's, it has an imperial. And so into that mess, because now that it's not just a struggle anymore, the, the struggle is now starting to organize itself. And into that struggle, God sends Prophets. And so we've been in which section of prophets right now? Brent, what are we looking at? We're in the pre-Assyrian prophets. Okay, pre-Assyrian prophets. We And, and we mentioned how we're going to have a couple prophets that speak to the northern kingdom of Israel, because the kingdom has split apart. And we're going to have a couple prophets that ha, they're going to, we're just entering, entering into today, the, the prophets that speak to Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, so when we think about those uh, first two prophets to Israel, the Northern Kingdom prophets. Uh, which prophets did we have? Brendan was the first one. Uh, we had Amos. Amos. What was the? We said that every prophet often had an image or a some kind of driving picture that helped ground their prophetic message. What was? What was the image of the uh, prophet Amos? Amos was uh, that idea of the the plumb line. Absolutely. And then what was the other uh, uh, is Israelite prophet that we spoke of? The other was. Uh... Hosea, and that image was that of a prostitute. Absolutely. Uh, so, so that is where we left off, and and now we we look at in today's episode and the next episode after this, two prophets that speak to the southern kingdom of Judah during the same time period. So again, a time period where everything everything's going great. Like 
I got my I got my mansions, I got my houses, I got my wealth, I got my comfort, I got my luxury. You know, Isaiah's going to say in in the next episode, uh, adding house to house and field to field. This is a time where everything is going like economy's awesome. We are we're stronger than ever, and yet God has a message about uh, what's happening in the midst of this struggle. And so we spoke of Brent a tension between. Because we really said that back with the Kings and Chronicles, we talked about two different stories. Brent, can you remind us of these, just as a sense of review, what are the two stories we talked about when we talked about Samuel, Kings, and, and Chronicles? So the story A was the Samuel and Kings version of the story, and that was this sort of headline, real-time view of what was going on. There was this focus on idolatry and idolatry and immorality. And then the story B was the Chronicles version, which was much uh, written down much later. It was more of a documentary perspective on it. You know, they already have the the full picture so they can look at the whole thing that's already happened. And this one, uh, the Chronicles version, they they look back and they say, well, our, our problem was really this lust for empire that that we had going on. Like, yes, the idolatry and immorality was there, but the lust for empire was really the driving problem behind all of it. Right. Uh, This sense of injustice and those things. Now, when we talked about that, Brent, we made a pretty uh, concerted effort um, to—what did we say about, like, which one of these two stories was the right story, the accurate story? Uh, They're both right. Yeah, they're both accurate. They just tell— the story from different reference points, looking at it in different ways, but they both tell very real truths about about the story and and what God's people are experiencing and the reasons why. And one story isn't necessarily more right than the other, but two two stories that are really um, uh, very important to getting a full uh, a full picture. And so we kind of toyed like as we go into the prophets here, we've been toying with this, and it's kind of tongue in cheek. Because um, it's not either or, but we're as we look at the prophets, one of the things we're wanting to look at is which ones of the like. I think these two stories run run through the prophets. Like there's the prophets have voices that may speak to immorality and idolatry, and they may also speak to empire and justice. And so we want to pay attention. Like as we listen to this prophet, do we hear this the voice of story A, or do we hear the voice of story B ringing out? And again, it's tongue in cheek because. It's both, and yet we're asking this question of which which story are we hearing the most of? And for me, that was important, Brent, because when I went through my studies, I really only got, and maybe this is my fault, maybe it was presented differently, but I feel like as I was taught the prophets, I was told story A. Like, the problem with Israel was their idolatry. They didn't get their God worship right. And it was immorality. They were they were an immoral people that had gotten their worship wrong, and that's why God's judgment came. There's absolutely truth to that. I think we'll see that even in today's conversation. But what I don't ever remember picking up during my education and formative training was an emphasis on the what what I might call story B, which was the idea that. Uh, uh, a very real part of the problem was this fascination with empire building and the cost, the price you pay to do that, which is people. There's a justice issue. So that's that's what we want to uh, keep our eyes open. We're going to continue to do that as we dance into Micah here. So 
Uh, Brett, if you don't have anything, how about we pick up and just uh, let's start looking at the beginning of uh, the prophet Micah. Yeah, I was just going to reiterate that, you know, growing up, I definitely spent time in Samuel and Kings and no time in Chronicles. I think maybe for obvious reasons, like it's more exciting. It's more scandalous. There's more stories, whereas Chronicles is just like laying out this systematic empire building regime and it's it's you know insidious it's not it's not in your face it's just it's just this core fundamental problem right but it's it's not it doesn't have that you know fire and interest that you have in the other story and so like the i mean you look at it today like a headline can get you excited real quick sure but when you step back and spend a couple of hours digging into a story, maybe it's more complicated than that. And so I think we see that in those, those stories. So Absolutely. Great point. The other thing I wanted to ask, uh, you know, we, we titled this episode uh, Micah Judge. And I don't know if you uh, want to yes. talk about what, what judgment is in this case before we dig into the text. Yeah, absolutely. I, and you even pointed this out, I believe, in one of the last uh, episodes, Brent, this concept. So the image here for Micah, if our first image of Amos was a plumb line and then Hosea was prophetic, what is Micah's image? Well, Micah's image is the judge. And yet when we've talked about judge and judgment, um, we've been quick to point out this is not the kind of judge and judging that we might think of in our context. When I say Micah's image is that of God as the judge, like here, God is, there's a judgment coming in and here comes God, the judge. We might have a tendency to, to see and to think of God in a black robe walking into a courtroom with a gavel in one hand, and he's here to make a ruling and pronounce a judgment. There's a part of that. There's a real there's a real part of that. The word we've been looking at is the word mishpat. Mishpat in the in the Hebrew. And, and the word mishpat does refer very directly to the place of judgment. Like in a very literal sense, it's the place of judgment. So the courtroom image isn't necessarily incorrect. And yet the root word, shafat. Uh, is the verb for to judge. And to judge is an action. It's not just making a decision. It's not just slamming down the gavel. It's not just making a ruling. But the the, the book of Judges, Brent, was called Shofatim in the Hebrew. The book of Judges is Shofatim, a plural of Shofet, a, a judge, Shofatim, judges. Um, they are these rulers. Like when you think about the story of Samson, Brent, do you think of Samson with a gavel in his hand? Uh, no. <laughs> You think of Samson with like the the jawbone of an ass in his hand. Yeah. You think of Samson with like the gates of a city slung over his shoulders. You think of Samson slaughtering a bunch of Philistines. Like judgment is very action oriented. Samson is a summer blockbuster. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And so you have this is this is this is action. The mishpat is about not just saying the judgment, not just declaring a ruling. Judgment is about the act of actually putting things right, a setting straight, a making straight. And so when we say, Micah, the images of a judge, we don't mean like a judge with a gavel. We mean a God concerned with, this God is concerned with making things straight, making things right, making things true. That's that's this driving image of judge and mishpat. So that'll be your image for uh, the book of Micah is that of judge. So thank you for asking that question, Mr. Millings. All right, let's get into the text. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth, 
during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you, listen, earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. So this is uh, Moresha. It's one of the places that I've been on many of my trips. I don't think I've taken any of my groups there uh, to this point, but a lot of the trips I was a participant on, we went to Moresha. Today in Israel, the location is often called Beit Guvrim, and uh, it's a crazy place, a bunch of underground uh, cities and a bunch of just really cool things to see there. Um, the rock formations there were a little bit easier to carve into and just some really interesting places. But this is Moresha that uh, Micah is from, and and he's he's got this message that he's he's coming to Judah with. Go ahead. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images." Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. All right. So as we go through here, let's be honest and let's stop just a moment and ask ourselves, does this sound like story A or story B? Does this sound like immorality and idolatry or does this sound like injustice? We said that Amos, Amos was a very heavy, which which agenda, which story, Brent? Story B. That is correct. Like Amos is very much like you sell the poor for a pair of sandals, like very much injustice. And yet we said Hosea, on the other hand, and not that Amos has no mention of idolatry, it's there, but Hosea, on the other hand, was very much story... Story A, I mean, the entire image of the prophet is a prostitute, like that's the, right. you know, your typical marker for uh, immorality. Yeah, absolutely, immorality and, and like spiritual adultery, so absolutely, so very strong, and not that it doesn't have any tones of injustice, but again, you get this sense that like prophets can come at this from two different... And here in the first chapter of Micah, you're getting which sense here, Brent? What is what? What are we talking about here? Very directly. I mean, we have the sins of the people of Israel. We have transgressions. We have high places, you know, idolatry occurring there. We have, you know, idols broken to pieces, prostitutes. Yeah, very, very directly. Which which story do you find here? Story uh, story A. Story A. Absolutely, this image of idolatry without without a doubt. So good to just stop and recognize that, so that. You know, Marty isn't. We're remembering that you've got you've got you've got different narratives that are colliding and coming together. It's not really either or. Again, it's kind of a tongue in cheek reference. Of course, it's both working together, and yet we want to be we want to keep our eyes open to what we see. So, go ahead and give us some more of chapter one. Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For Samaria's plague is incurable. It has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Beth Ophrah, roll in the dust. Pass by naked and in shame, you who live in Shafir. Those who live in Za'anan will not come out. Beth Azel is in mourning. It no longer protects you. Those who live in Maroth writhe in pain, waiting for relief. Because disaster has come from the Lord, 
even to the gate of Jerusalem. You who live in Lachish, harness fast horses to the chariot. You are where the sin of daughter Zion began, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Therefore you will give parting gifts to Morasheth Gath. The town of Akzib will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel. I will bring a conqueror against you who live in Merishah. The nobles of Israel will flee to Adullam. Shave your head in the morning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourself as bold as the vulture, for they will go from you into exile. Okay, so we definitely have this uh, judgment is coming. This is not a pretty image or a pretty picture. This is going to be um, it's going to be tough. Judgment is on its way, and and at the very beginning, if we have a reason to say it, it's idolatry at this point, let's see let's see how Micah keeps moving. We're going to keep going into chapter two here. Uh, Woe to those who plan iniquity. To those who plot evil on their beds, at morning's light they carry it out uh, because it's their uh, power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. What has our has our agenda has our story changed here any at all, Brent? It seems like there's some injustice happening. All right, so we, it feels like the tone is it's it's at least both of these things working together. But we're definitely getting uh, pure justice, people, injustice, uh, empire. We're we're seizing ha- houses, coveting fields. We're we're building our own empires here. So we at least have uh, some of story B showing up here. Uh, Therefore, the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, people will ridicule you. They will taunt you with a mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. You descendants of Jacob, should it be said, does the Lord become impatient? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good to the one whose ways are upright? Lately my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive women, the women of my people, from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Get up and go away, for this is not your resting place, because it is defiled, it is ruined beyond all remedy. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet. For this people. So, again, more of which story here, Brent, as you listen to it? More story B. More story B. So, chapter one, idolatry and incoming judgment. Chapter two, injustice and judgment coming. And then, like we, we mentioned already, Brent, always a little a little sprinkling, a little dusting of what? Of hope. A hope. Now, it's not going to be a ton. I'm looking at two verses here. It's not a ton of hope. <laughs> just Just a pinch. Just a pinch. Just enough. Just enough hope to remind us that this, the story isn't totally hopeless. It's not drenched in despair. It's not, it's not over. It's not total judgment. There's some hope. Uh, Surely I will gather you, Jacob. Surely I will bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass before them. The Lord at their head. That's going to be a passage that comes back a little later, Brent. Yeah, yeah. Make a note of that. Yeah. Extra credit for anybody that knows where that's going to show up. Fantastic little 
It's only two verses, but some good two verses there. It's going to show up later in your Bibles. It's in the text. It's in the text. Let's now we could we could go through the next couple chapters, but let's uh, for the sake of brevity, let's jump ahead to chapter five. Brent, do you want to read us some of chapter five? Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Okay, so they're under they're 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 under attack. The image here. I mean, here comes that judgment. Uh, that's the setting here. Go ahead. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach out to the ends of the earth. Okay, so now we have this. There's a famous passage, right? We hear this all the time. What time of year do we hear this passage? Brent, you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler. What time of year do we hear this? A Christmas passage. Absolutely. Prophecy about Jesus. And yet we've been talking, uh, one of the things that Christians love to do is we love to take prophecies that get connected to Jesus in some way, and we love to just race ahead. We, we read this prophecy, we're like, ah, a prophecy about Jesus. That's not primarily what these prophets were doing when they gave these prophecies. We have to remember that. Like, that's so critical. That's not to take anything away from the fact that Jesus fulfills. And we, we'll look more about, we'll see more about fulfillment in session three uh, when we get there. Like, what does it mean to fulfill? It's not what we think it means. Uh, so we'll we'll do that some more there. I don't want to take away from Jesus in this passage, but when Micah wrote this passage, he wasn't writing about a future Messiah. It, it doesn't take much to realize that. It doesn't take much to see that. All we have to do is put ourselves in Micah's shoes and in Micah's audience, and this passage sounds totally different than what many of us have been familiar with. So, Brent, if, I, if Micah says, in, in Micah's day— but out of you, Bethlehem, will come a ruler. Who? What do you suppose that? Do you think they think Messiah, or what do they? What do you suppose they think? Uh, I mean, we just had David recently. Yeah, absolutely. Like when they think a ruler coming out of Bethlehem, well, the King of Israel, like the David, like David, uh, one of the greatest kings of Israel in their mind, like that that's the ruler that comes out of Bethlehem. And what's the point here? Though you are small among the clans of, what was the whole, what was the whole like tone and tenor and lesson behind David coming out of Bethlehem, Brent? Can you remember what, what was the setting of his story? What what was the, what was odd about David being anointed and chosen? David was the youngest. He was the runt of the litter. He was not even there when, uh, when it was, you know, presented like, here are my sons who could, you know, do something for you. And David is not even a part of that conversation. Right. And and Bethlehem, a, a really big, impressive military city, Brent? Teeny tiny little town. Yeah. Yeah. Out of you, Bethlehem, small among the... So what's being said here? This, this isn't a Messianic prophecy about Jesus primarily, like it's going to be that later. But when Micah writes this, the, the readers of this prophecy... How did, the pro, how did the chapter start? Marshal your troops. Here we are. We're under attack. And yet, Prophet Micah says, you need to remember, you need to remember how God's story works. You don't, like, you don't save yourself through the means of empire. You save yourself. God's upside-down kingdom 
is always backwards and different. So even though the, the troop, even though you're surrounded, marshal your troops, remember that out of Bethlehem comes your rulers. Out of smallness comes God's bigness. Out of backwards, out of lastness comes firstness. Uh, so, and, and then we keep, go ahead and give us the next few verses here, Brent. Let's see what happens here. And he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. We will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders. I find that interesting. Seven. Well, first of all, what was what was the? Uh, I guess we could say vocation of little David when we meet him. He was a shepherd. He was a shepherd. How many brothers did he have? Seven brothers. Seven brothers. It sure seems to me that when Micah writes this, everybody's going to be thinking David and seeing the point and the image of these seven shepherds. Even that would make David. Which? How many sons? He would be the eighth. Eighth. So we have seven shepherds, eight commanders. Go ahead and keep reading. We will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. Uh, an interesting footnote on that. Um, that could also be translated the land of Nimrod in its gates, which kind of made me think of like the idea of city gates. Absolutely. And really shapes the language here when you're reading all this stuff about sword and triumph. And, and not to take away from that, there's obviously a tone here of military triumph. And yet it's a backwards triumph. It's not a triumph that comes when you expect it. It's a triumph that comes from a way that you at least expect it. But yes, when you when you see gates here, all of a sudden it's less about swords and more about, again, mishpat. It's more about everything being put in its proper place. So absolutely, that's good. The city gates are where, where the mishpat was usually uh, doled out, right? Right, absolutely. I think we looked at that just at the beginning of this session here in session two. Uh, okay, so the... Yeah, he will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations... In the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue. Yeah. So you you have this. And sometimes I think when we read these prophets, I think we have been kind of like lulled into thinking like the prophets were always a waste of time. Like God sent prophets and it never worked. God sent prophets and nobody listened. They just kept doing their own thing, and so God had to send judgment. Like, that's how it goes. Like, the people are doing wrong. God sends prophets. Nobody listens to them. Like, nobody heeds any of these words that God's saying. But we have to remember that that's, in this case, this is actually not the case. Because Judah is going to hear the the call of the prophet through the leadership of a guy by the name of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is going to lead like some of the greatest. We have like tons of archaeological evidence. Like some, sometime we'll have to talk, Brent, about Bet Shemesh. Um, if you get to come with me over to Israel, we'll take you to Bet Shemesh and talk about some of the things that we've discovered about the days of Hezekiah. He led some of the most like strict reforms of calling the people back to. They did repent, um, and Assyria is going to come in and conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. But if you remember Sennacherib, like if you know anything about world history, like. The Assyrian ruler Sennacherib, uh, he gets right up to the edge of Jerusalem. Hezekiah leads repentance. And again, it's not army against army. It's repentance against, it's shalom against empire. Hezekiah repents and God sends Sennacherib running back home because of a plague, according to the biblical text. Like, this is this is all backwards. So we have to remind ourselves that, in fact, um, 
sometimes God's people do listen to prophets, and it does save the day, at least for a period of time, because it won't last. But at least for a period of time, yeah, it's a it's a big thing. Let's let's move towards the end of Micah. I'm going to jump ahead to chapter six, uh, and, and here's 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 the the real image of God as judge. Here's the case, like the case against Israel. My subtitle in my Bible says, uh, "Here's God as judge. God as Shaphat." Uh, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead uh, my case before the mountains, that the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord? So, so God, God says, here's my case. <laughs> remember where you came from. And, like, here's my judgment. And, and here's Micah's response, like, uh-oh. So what should I do now that I'm hearing the judgment of God pointed at me? What should I do? With what should I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come with him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Now, what is the assumption here with Micah's question? He's assuming the answer to these questions is what, positive or negative? Uh, Positive, right? Like God set up a sacrificial system, right? Well, that's what you would assume, and yet his tone here is negative. He's assuming the negative. How should I respond to God? Should I come to him with with sacrifices? Like, is that what God wants? And his the the, the assumption here, and we I kind of threw you there. We stopped like mid-paragraph, so it's hard to see what, where he's going with this. But Micah's assumption here is God doesn't want that. God doesn't want the sacrifices. God God doesn't want... But that's odd because, like you just said, Brent, who was it that commanded the sacrifices? God did. God did. So you you think the response to this would be, well, yeah, and so here we are, and I'm doing this. I'm setting us up here because I'm going back to the source A, source B. Like, is this immorality and idolatry, or is this about injustice and empire? Like, if this is just about a moral code, then the answer to this question should be, yes, God just wants you to worship correctly. Just do it correctly. Just don't do idolatry, do worship rightly and be right, be moral. And and yet the morality is going to lead to another conversation about justice. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then Micah says this, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? So does he require sacrifices? Does he require 10,000 rams and, and rivers of olive oil? He has shown you O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is what God requires. And and this doesn't mean that he doesn't want sacrifices or he hates temple worship in the days of Micah. Sure, but the point of what God wants is humility. The point of what God wants is justice. The point of what God wants is mercy, to act justly, to love mercy mercy and to walk humbly. And so then you can just kind of look at the at the subtitles on our way out of the book of Micah, you know, Israel's guilt and punishment. He wants justice, he wants mercy, he wants humility and yet that's not what they have. Um 
It's not what they have to offer. This is going to be a problem. And so what it leads to is Israel's misery, Micah 7. Uh, that's going to be a pretty a pretty ugly thing. But then it ends with always always a little dusting, always a little sprinkling of what, Brent? Of hope. A little bit of hope. Israel will rise. Israel will rise. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and upholds my cause. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness, his zedekah. Then my enemy will see it and will be covered with shame. She who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her downfall. Even now she will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. And and the rest of Michael will just continue. It will close with a kind of like a song, a, a prayer uh, of praise. And, and, and we'll kind of finish off with that hope. But that's our image of, uh, of Micah, Brent. It has some story in it. It's got some idolatry. It's got some morality. But it feels like the judge of Micah, uh, the main concern, the main requirement, the main image, feels very source B to me. But we'll, we'll see what we keep running into as we go through the prophets. Um, all right. Well, that does it for our, our re-record of this episode. So, you know, in lieu of our normal closing, I'm just going to say things are a little bit different uh, in 2021. So we don't have discussion groups on the Palouse like we did, like we talk about at the end of most of our episodes up to this point. Uh, I think at some point we mentioned the map. Um, I'm pretty sure the map had, had started at this point. Yep. But just go to bamonisipship.com. If you go to the groups tab, you'll you'll find the map there. There's discussion groups all over the world. And so find a group and get into it because like this kind of stuff is great to talk about in community. Find some people who have a different perspective and, and help you approach this text and wrestle with this text and, and figure it out. So I'd strongly encourage that. And, uh, you know, Twitter's still a great way to get a hold of me or Marty. You can find him at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. And uh, I think that does it for this for this episode. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.